My name is Ted Burns, and I'm Senior Director of Political Affairs and RADPAT for the American College of Radiology Association, and I want to welcome you to our Radvocacy podcast hosted by RADPAT. Our goal with the podcast is to give you a behind-the-scenes look into the various advocacy efforts of the college, our members, and insights from political influencers here in Washington, D.C. And I'm honored today to have with us the Vice President of our legal team at the ACR, Tom Hoffman. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Hi, Ted. Good, thanks. Appreciate being here. Of course. So this is a big day today and tomorrow for Tom and I on a more personal level. Tom and I have worked together forever. He's probably the one in Reston office, our headquarters office, that I talk to most regularly to make sure that RAPAC doesn't get in any legal trouble. And I always have questions about how we can be aggressive while being compliant. But this is a big day for Tom and I because, one, he and I are both huge basketball fans. And it's also a sad day because he's a Syracuse guy. I'm a Villanova guy. And this is like the first time it seems forever that both teams are not in the tournament. So we're kind of going to have to find different rooting interests during March Madness. And it's also a big day because it's the day before St. Patrick's Day. And so I'm sure Tom's going to want to celebrate St. Patrick's Day tomorrow, it being on a Friday. So, Tom, before we get going into the topic of surprise billing, which is our primary focus for this podcast, just tell us first about your background, where you're from, your education, where you studied, and then how long you've been with the college and in your primary role here within the college. I'm a proud native of Syracuse, New York, born and raised in central New York near Lake Ontario. I went to college at Lemoyne College, right in Syracuse. Lemoyne is the second youngest Jesuit college in the U.S. Studied history there for excitement, British history, U.S., uh, Asian history. Always wanted to go to law school from the time I was a, a kid, like nine or 10, because I was intrigued by how law influenced all we do throughout the U.S., its interaction with government, I was fortunate to get admitted to law school at Georgetown University here in Washington, D.C., so I left good old Syracuse to travel south to to D.C., studied law at Georgetown for three years, then landed a position with the federal government, was a Fed lawyer for about five years with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. From there, had a stint with a law firm in D.C. as a healthcare regulatory and legislative associate. And then decided to try to apply the policy experience that I obtained at HHS and the government with a client contact, more one-on-one or small group interaction that I had with my law firm days. So my dad, who was an executive vice president for over 30 years with the Onondaga County Medical Society, a local medical society in central New York in the Syracuse area, dad suggested that I think about throwing my hat in the ring for a, a nonprofit position, try to see what a, a medical specialty society might have for a legal work. So I threw my CV around and thankfully ACR had an opening at the time and in the legal department signed me on in June of 97. Since then, I've had the blessing to practice a variety of law. Ted, you noted the work you and I do with our colleagues in advocacy, right. overseeing the Rad Pack, helping prepare our members to testify before Congress or provide comments to exec agencies that matter so much to radiology, such as Medicare, Food and Drug Administration. I also work closely with our Philadelphia office, the Center for Research and Innovation, as contracts do, reviewing and negotiating contracts and grants for our federally funded and privately funded trials. 
and more recently I've been involved with governance and membership, working with colleagues to help make sure that the college's governance process functions smoothly with the Board of Chancellors, Council Steering Committee, and, and the Council. We've got a where it has it an annual meeting sneaking up around the corner. So look forward to <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that gets a little busy for you too, I'm sure. Um, I, so essentially, I did not know that you were at HHS. I was a Fed back in uh, the, the early 90s. My wow. best friend from law school said uh, when I worked for the Social Security Administration, Tom, you're trying to take away benefits from old ladies in wheelchairs. And I said, Keith, right. no, I'm making sure that the, <laughs> the the Treasury, our tax dollars are used appropriately for people who deserve those benefits. It was a great experience. Learned a lot from excellent lawyers and, and good people. Well, we're very thankful to have you. I, in particular, am very thankful to have you because I lasted three days in law school. And then I realized that there's a lot of reading assignments that were not short reading assignments. And I realized I couldn't fake my way through it. So I, I had a full three days and I had enough. So I, thankfully, we have people like you who can kind of do all the dirty work for us and make sure that we're being in compliance with the law. So with our topic today, Surprise Billion, this has been such an interesting issue to watch legislatively kind of from the beginning negotiations on the Hill with, with kind of the various packages that were being negotiated in both the House and the Senate, then what ultimately happened with it in its passage. But even more interestingly and probably even more visibly, since its passage, it's really kind of almost had a second life of its own. And, and that's not as typical with a lot of things that are passed. So I think with it obviously being another issue that is, is pretty important to a good majority of our members, whether they're seeing a huge direct impact or not, it's still going to have a, a trickle-down effect to some extent. So just really brief background about Surprise Billing. Most of our listeners are going to have a good understanding of it. Uh, the No Surprise Act was part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was passed into law, and it was to go into effect January of 2022. From the CMS website, the way that they kind of describe the No Surprise Act, it's that its goal was to protect the people covered under group and individual health plans from receiving surprise medical bills when they receive most emergency services, non-emergency services from out-of-network providers at an in-network facility, and services from out-of-network air ambulance service providers. Also establishes an independent dispute resolution, which was a huge part of a lot of the negotiations in the House and the Senate and which bill was going to include that or not include that. And that actually has great relevance to us in this process. But it was to establish that IDR, the independent dispute resolution process, for payment disputes between plans and providers and provides new dispute resolution opportunities for uninsured and self-pay individuals when they receive a medical bill that is substantially greater than the good faith estimate they get from the provider. So is that, I mean, that's from the CMS website. I think that's a, a fairly accurate, very broad uh, description of uh, the NSA. But again, kind of to the point that I, I brought up just a bit ago is, you know, typically once a bill gets passed, then when they're they're actually writing it for implementation, there's there's a process of them of really trying to interpret what was the legislative intent of the provision that was passed, and then they go ahead and they write you know the rule. So where did things kind of, in your opinion, either go sideways or kind of just talk about what happened once they started trying to go down this road of implementing the legislation that was passed? path of the No Surprises Act, the, the law 
as you outlined, Ted, started going off the rails in the summer of 21 when CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, issued its first regulation in July of 21 when it introduced the concept of qualifying payment amount or QPA, that is the contracted rate that insurers establish with physicians of a specific specialist and and within a geographic area, that QPA was tied to payments as of January of 2019 before the, the pandemic adjusted for inflation. The problem with that regulation in July of 21 and then the, the next regulation soon thereafter in September of 21 was that the feds had a very nearsighted, one-sided approach to how you define the qualifying payment amount. It took into account nothing about the expertise of our members, the complexity of the case, the patient's condition. It was just this contracted amount benchmarked at what the insurers would decide, gave the insurers overly broad flexibility. ACR and other medical societies commented, pointed out the flaws, the feds ignored it. And at that point, we had a decision to make. The issue with the QPA is also how much weight they put with it as far as a determining factor in this whole process through the IVR. Is that accurate? That, that's accurate. Our okay. members, if they contested the, the rate that the insurer proposed to reimburse them at, had very little maneuverability in going to an arbitrator, an independent dispute resolution entity, because they'd be the federal rate would focus and give primary weight, almost exclusive weight, to that QPA and, and discount everything else. So the, the IDR process really was behind the eight ball before it even started, based on the, the methodology that the feds came up with. Right. And I, and I think all of the stakeholders involved in this, even from the legislative negotiations from the very beginning, agreed that the patient should be held harmless. I think there is no dispute about that. It was just a matter of the dispute about the disputes. And, you know, so how you go about that, trying to see how this is rolling out. And then some of the folks, the TMA, the Texas Medical Association, along with uh, some other folks, start to really get involved from a more judicial perspective and trying to figure out how maybe they can get some change or some delay or have some sort of impact on what was being done. Can you talk a little bit about how that process started and then how it evolved and then kind of where we are now. Sure. By the fall of 21, after the government, and it was not just CMS, but four departments actually, HHS that oversees Medicare, Department of Labor, Department of Treasury, and then the Office of Personnel Management all had a role in these regs. By the time the second reg hit the street in September of 21, ACR realized that it either would have to take its lumps, which was not a solution, with the regulatory process as it had unfolded, or it could consider a different, a new frontier of advocacy that is considering court challenge, suing the feds to tell a federal judge the Congress was real clear about how the process was to unfold for holding patients harmless, very pro-patient up front, but then for physicians and their groups, making sure they had a more level playing field. You're right that the Texas Medical Association was the leader. It actually was the first to sue the feds in, I believe, late October of 21. AMA, the American Medical Association, the American Hospital Association, then sued about a month later. At that point, ACR was our executive committee of the Board of Chancellors, started to talk with the American Society of Anesthesiologists, American College of Emergency Physicians, their leadership, and realized there's an opportunity here 
to partner because our members had common interests as hospital-based physicians that who were at risk of not being adequately reimbursed and perhaps having to close or curtail their, their practices, particularly in smaller and rural areas. By early December of 21, our three organizations committed, we've got to do something. It's, it's time to step up our game for our members and go to court and try to stop the regulations. We followed then the coattails of the, the TMA and the AMA by having a similar theory. First, that the government violated federal law because it was arbitrary and capricious in coming up with a regulation, an interpretation that had no legal basis. It's not what Congress had legislated. And then second, procedurally, the government rushed through a rulemaking with no time for people to have meaningful comment. So those are the two theories that all societies, TMA, then AMA, AHA, and finally the college, along with the anesthesiologists and emergency physicians, decided would be the, the best strategy to, to take. We filed a lawsuit in Illinois right before the holidays in 21. Now, Tom, I've been here at the ACR not quite as long as you, but certainly a very long time, uh, or it seems like a decently long time, about 20 years almost. Was this the first time we've ever done a lawsuit? Because I don't ever really remember anything to this extent that the college has done. Yes, this okay. was unprecedented. And we had to think long and hard about the consequences. What would it mean to our relationship with CMS that is so important to our members and their practices? What would it do to the relationship with our partner associations, ASA and ASAP, along with the business managers that are real important allies? We, we decided that the benefits outweigh the risks. So now there's been different iterations of this since the original effort by TMA. So where, where are things now? And then kind of where do you see us going with this from either the legal perspective or then is this something that, you know, I think we're talking about internally within our government relations office, if this is something we need to look at doing something legislatively, maybe during our ACR Hill Day coming up in May as one of our legislative issues, we're, we're negotiating that kind of internally among ourselves. But where, where do you think things are now from the kind of the legal perspective, if you will? The action is in Texas. April 19th will feature a, a double header as we get into baseball season, a hearing yeah. that the, the Texas federal court will have in two pending cases, both brought by TMA and both that ACR along with the anesthesiologists and emergency physician support as friends of the court. So we filed a brief supporting the TMA's lawsuit against the government here. Uh, these two cases target the, the methodology of the QPA, this qualifying payment amount that the government improperly applied and then more recently, TMA's latest suit challenged the, the government's dramatic and unfounded hike of fees to participate in the dispute resolution process, a 600% bump with virtually no notice right uh, before the new year happened in 23. Those two cases will go before the judge on April 19th. The judge has ruled twice for TMA, twice for physicians, uh, ACR members in their practices and support. I expect that this judge will issue a decision probably within a month to six weeks. So by Memorial Day, late May, we, we should hear. I'm cautiously optimistic based on the judge's track record of understanding how the regulators misapplied the flaw and failed to get right what Congress intended. If, however, the judge either remands, sends back the case for, for more reg writing or whole, uh, rules for the government, then... Our societies have to decide, do we take up our own lawsuit again in Illinois and, and try again ourselves? 
Now, what happens if with this, you said April 19th, what happens with this April 19th case? The decision comes out, let's say the judge continues to rule similar to our our line of thinking. At what point is, <laughs> at what is the next level of action? Because if the federal government keeps saying, nah, we're good, and the judge keeps, you know, we keep bringing these different suits and the judge, who's, I believe it's the same judge, right? It is, yes. So that judge isn't changing either. Then what becomes like the the next hurdle or the next thing that can happen? Because it just seems to get, is it does it get elevated to a higher level of court? Or how does that work? The government could appeal to the next level, the Fifth Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals. But that takes time. And more importantly, it frustrates the, or stalls the this dispute resolution process. Arbitrators have considerable backlog of cases now that not only our ACR members, but the members in the other organizations have submitted. They're not getting paid. Patient care could be slowed down and impaired because uh, physicians are not able to have compensation flow through their, their practices. So the feds could appeal or they could go back to the, the drawing board and, and write rules that finally apply faithfully what the No Surprises Act was intended to do back at the end of 2020. So then the really the ball's in the court of the feds for them to either say, we're going to continue to push back or we're going to figure out a way to be a little bit more accommodating with kind of this push that they're getting from us, groups like us who are concerned about their interpretation. So it's really in their court. That's right. The feds have to decide, presuming that the judge rules for the Texas Medical Association and and then indirectly ACR. Okay. So now if, what would happen if the judge rules in our favor, let's say our favor, and the feds decide not to appeal, then they would go through the process of, of changing the regulatory language somehow? Like, how does that work? Right. Which is what they had to do after they lost the first case uh, a little over a year ago. The Texas judge said, you blew it, legally speaking. So the government went back and rewrote guidance and then issued by, by this past summer, last August, a new rule. But that, that still gave undue preference to the, the QPA, put that thumb on the scale wrongly that would basically favor the insurers. The, the feds would have to evaluate what the judge said about uh, that even playing field and craft a, a regulation that is more in line with, with the law. Tough problem is that this is getting into heavy regulatory season for the feds and Medicare. You've got the physician fee schedule coming out, the hospital outpatient payment schedule that our colleagues, Katie Kaiser and Angela Kim and Econ are going to be tackling for members. So the feds have to get the new surprises rulemaking in line with its other things on its plate. If there were a federal mandate from a judge to do that. Now, I guess the question is, and not to, to be kind of like the Philadelphian, Negadelphian uh, person that I can be from a mis- mischievous perspective, but couldn't the Fed continue to not appeal, but say, okay, yeah, you know what, we're going to go back to the drawing board. But then as they continue to go back to the drawing board, they can kind of continue to delay or go down a road that's just going to kick the can further and further by not quite doing exactly what the court's saying, but just enough to make it seem like it's close enough. And then probably knowing that groups like us are going to come back and counter again, and then it's going on and on. Like, when does this have an end game? If that was kind of, I mean, not 
I hope that it's not what they would do, but clearly they have been, they've had their foot in the ground too. I mean, they haven't been super overly accommodating. So is that something from a, from their perspective that could, could be a, a path for them? Yeah, it can. In fact, they've taken a step that way by issuing guidance a few weeks ago, right after the, the latest, the second ruling for TMA and, and ACR members, when the CMS and the other departments issued revised guidance that started accepting cases up to a certain amount of time. In other words, they decided to review and begin paying on cases up until, I believe, October 25th of 22, around there, which was the effective date of the, the federal regulation that Medicare issued last year. So they're doing it in pieces, step by step. As you say, Ted, they can buy their time and it's almost a game of chicken, which side blinks. Skeptically, the, the government might believe that physicians and their members aren't going to want to invest time in these lawsuits, going back to court, having to wait weeks, if not months, for a result in their favor. And even if they get that favorable ruling, then you have to push, keep pushing the feds. My crystal, crystal ball, though it's fuzzy, leans toward the, the government taking that middle approach. They're, they're probably not going to appeal, but they will be real measured, parentheses, delaying in getting this IDR process, the, the backlog cleaned up. Yeah, it's, it's just a frustrating. And I guess that kind of then opens the door for groups like us to say, maybe it's just best to go with a legislative route. But then if you think about it from that perspective, it's like, we've been there, done that. You know, so here we go again to go down the legislative route to try to get a little bit more clarity. And then it's still open for another interpretation, you know? And so it, it's kind of a never ending cycle here. Right. And that, that's the revolving door among the branches of government that, that you and our GR and economics policy colleagues live, oh. that you, you get what you believe is a, a solid pro-patient law that has parts that, that would favor our physicians, our members, but you depend on the regulators. Law frequently depends on the regs to faithfully execute their purpose. And if that doesn't work, you're, you're left with either going to the courts or back to the executive branch, the regulator's drawing board, and, and seeing who's, who's got the stamina to, to see it through. So I, I don't know if there is anything that our members can do, but it is, are we looking for any examples? Are we looking for any data? Are we looking for anything that our members can give us as kind of tools in this arsenal as we're looking to see what our options are? We are. Our members have an open door to communicate experiences that they've had, negative experiences that they've had with insurers, particularly if they've gone into this independent dispute resolution process, started down the path of arbitration, and they're, they're frustrated because either they're, they've submitted a case and it's gone nowhere, or the arbitrator has ruled for them, but payment has not gone to the physician and their group. Let us know about that. For antitrust legal reasons, we have to be very careful in not getting specific price and fee data from our, our physicians, but we can get stories, firsthand accounts that we can take and shape into our advocacy approach to the courts and to Congress as well. And that's something that we're just asking them to provide to either my economic colleagues or to us in government relations, whomever they, they know, they can just send it to us and kind of collect it all and, and try to formulate what's really happening in the real world type of thing. 
Right, and we're also working with our colleague Elizabeth Rula. Who, uh, Dr. Rula is the exec director of the Harvey L. Neiman Health Policy Institute that has been instrumental in providing uh, an analytic approach and evaluating the, the data that we've received and how we might boost our advocacy in this area. Well, look, I, I don't want to take too much of your time because I know this is a busy season for, for you and it certainly is, is never dull for us here in the government relations team. Um, in, in fact, I'm, I'm leaving here once I get cleaned up to, to go to the Hill uh, for, for uh, some meetings later this afternoon. So we'll end the episode like we normally do. We call it the lightning round, and this is just quick answers uh, to some questions, kind of similar to how we started the episode where we asked you for your background and and things like that just kind of helps our members who are listening and even those who aren't members of the college who are listening to to get a better understanding of who our guests are, you know, from a little bit more of a personal level, uh, in addition to kind of expertise that they bring during the episode with the topics that we're we're discussing. So favorite food? Crab cakes. Ever since I've been here in the DFV, I've really enjoyed the the Maryland cuisine of crab. Great. Favorite place to travel? Ireland. We took a family trip to Ireland a few years ago. It was magical. Uh, caught up with some family members and, and really had a wonderful experience there. Awesome. I'm jealous. Favorite hobby or activity? I like traveling, exploring different parts of the country. And I also enjoy walking with our dog, our adopted dachshund lab. She keeps me okay. active. Good. And then favorite saying or quote? Now, this can be you know, one that's well known. This could be kind of your own uh, that maybe you've made up or, or one that you, you like to, to use in your house with the, with the kids and all that. Um, favorite saying or quote? <laughs> well, you mentioned St. Patrick's Day earlier. Right. And I've always uh, had a special place for the Irish blessing that starts, uh, may the road rise to me, you may the wind be always at your back. So, so those, have, those words have meant a lot to me. And, and something my high school music teacher says, always have a song in your heart. Try to keep it light. Cool. I like that. Well, Tom, I appreciate your time today on the on the podcast. I appreciate you personally. You've been a great friend for many, many years. And it, I really enjoyed working with you and very thankful to have you in our in our back pocket, uh, so to speak, so that, um, you know, again, we avoid getting any trouble. Personally, we get avoid getting in trouble as an organization. And so the many successes we've had with Rat Pack over the almost 20 years I've been here, a lot of that also should be credited to you. So thank you. I mean that sincerely. And uh, I hope you have a good day. I hope if you did a bracket, you do well, uh, and that you picked a couple good upsets, even though our two teams won't be involved. I'll be watching the games, Ted. Thank you for all your advocacy and for bringing this to life for our members. Appreciate it, guys. Sure. Thanks.